Wow, I think I just had the best seat in the house, and I didn't expect that. I could hear everyone belting out the goodness and faithfulness of God. And, oh, if we could just go around and share the stories of the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God in our lives, man, that'd be a blast. We'll do it sometime. Today we're in 1 Timothy, so if you want to start turning there. We've entitled this series, Blueprints. For God's family. And here's the thing about blueprints. Blueprints make or break the construction of a building. So um, about a week ago, uh, my family had the privilege of going to the mountains, to Rocky Mountain National Park. Are you kidding me, Josh? Where is he? (laughs) Sorry. No explanation needed. Um, We went to Rocky Mountain National Park, and we bought my, uh, my boys these mini Lego sets, okay? Let's show this picture. Jonathan, there it is. Okay, so bought these sets, and we were like, you can't open until you get home. So all the hours driving home, they're just looking at all excited, right? And I was excited about it, too. I thought it'd be pretty sweet until I found this out. So here's the catch. That's the size of a regular Lego. That's the size of one of these stupid things. (laughs) That is supposedly the instructions. Now, we got home Saturday night, last Sunday morning. Of course, they wanted to do it right away. Thankfully, I was not preaching because I about pulled my hair out the first half hour of that day and then said, I'm sorry, you boys will have to ask mommy if she can figure this out. Because I can't figure it out, and I walked away, and I've stayed away. Um, If you find some directions that are more helpful than these on Google or something, please send them my way, because I I think it would be really cool if we could build these animals um, that we saw. We didn't actually see a bear. We did see a ram, though, but uh, that we saw out in the Rocky Mountains. But here's the point of all this. Um, Thankfully, God has given us crystal clear blueprints for church family life. He doesn't give us instructions like those. And in First and Second Timothy and Titus, which we'll be going through throughout the next year with Job interspersed and a marriage series, we're going to go through these books and learn what God's blueprint is for his family. And this summer and beyond, we're going to be in First Timothy specifically. So, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, if you could turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, and we use the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, here. 1 Timothy 1, 1, CSB. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. And we'll stop right there for now. So I want you to kind of meet the crew of this building project. So the first person we see is the chief architect. This is God. Verse 1, Paul here is a mere representative of God, but God is the one calling the shots for his family. It says, by the command of God. And God is also the one giving 
the building project morale and assurance of success, right, of Christ Jesus, our hope. He's the one who even brings hope to the family of God as it's being built. But God is the chief architect, and it says that God is the one who will help the family reach its goal. And the goal, of course, being eternity with Jesus. And it's not always pretty along the way, right, in the church family, in the family of God. And we know this, being in families, that it's not always pretty along the way, right? But it's, there is always real hope because of Jesus Christ, because he is the chief architect. And we know how the story ends. But the designer under the chief architect God is Paul. He's, he's called the apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle, much like the Old Testament prophets, is someone who is simply God's mouthpiece. And the qualifications to be an apostle is that you had to have seen the resurrected Christ. And if you look at Acts, you see that Paul on the road to Damascus had a clear encounter with Christ. And the second qualification is that you have to be commissioned by Christ to be an apostle. And he did that as well on the road to Damascus. And so Paul is the designer. He is the one writing down the blueprints that he gets from God. And that's where we get 1 Timothy. Uh, and the designer is like the go-between between the chief architect and what we'll just call the project manager. And I did some, some research on structures with, um, within companies that, that are, are building buildings. And I don't know all of my stuff here. I'll just be honest. But I learned that every company terms things and names things differently, which I thought was odd. Why can't you just name the same thing? But that's, that's besides the point. But generally... The terms are chief architect, that's the, the, the big man in charge, and then the project manager is the go-between um, between them and the, uh, uh, the, the person carrying it out. So you have the chief architect, then you've got Paul here, and Paul is our designer, and then we have the, ch- we have the project manager who is Timothy, and we see that in verse 2. Timothy is trained by Paul, and Paul and Timothy have this father-son relationship that's so close, and now he's sending Timothy out to this church in Ephesus, and he's supposed to lead the church. And so Timothy is the one making sure that the blueprints are followed as the church is built. So in our church structure here at Stonebridge, that would be the pastor, myself. And as we're going to find out later in 1 Timothy, the pastor is not meant to be the dictator or the king. There are to be a group of men elders that share the role of shepherding and leading the church family, and that is what we have here as well. But there needs to be a leader. There's a functional thing. See, God is very practical, and he goes, you need, you need a leader of any group, so that is my role here, and, but I'm, I'm not any more important than the elders here. We lead together. Um, and so that is the structure that uh, Paul is laying out to Timothy, who he got from God, to do that in their church family as well. Now, where's the job site? The job site we see in verse 3 is Ephesus, particularly the church in Ephesus, God's family. Now, I want to share this quote from Ligonier Ministries that was helpful on Ephesus. So look at this with me. It's located in modern-day western Turkey. Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia and a political, commercial, and religious hub. Home to the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, it would later become a center of Caesar worship. A large Jewish community lived in Ephesus, and the heresies plaguing the Ephesian churches when Paul wrote to Timothy appear to have been a strange mixture of Judaism, 
paganism and Christianity. So to sum it up, Ephesus was a highly influential city on culture that was in the largest country or empire on the earth at the time, Rome. It was a melting pot of religions and cultures and ideas. I think the best um, modern-day equivalent would be New York City. Okay, just a melting pot of cultures and religions and ideas. Can you imagine planting a church in New York City? I certainly cannot. Okay, this is why Timothy needed some guidance here. This is why Paul's writing to him. So now we move on in 1 Timothy, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 5 now, and we're going to see Timothy here. We're going to see the project manager, the pastor here, the one carrying it out. What's his job description? So, verse 3, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Why? So that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now, the goal of all our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So if you look at this, it's pretty clear what his job description is. Verse 3 is to instruct. Verse 4, God's plan. Verse 5, in love. Boil it down. The job description of a pastor is to instruct God's plan in love. Now certainly, this isn't everything a pastor must do. But it must start and end here. And as we see God's blueprint for his family, the church, and for our church here at Stonebridge, I want to train all of you to not just see these things as the role of the pastor and elders and leaders of the church. Oh, that's what they're supposed to do. I can check out today. Ha, Matt, good luck. No, here's what I want to train you to do as you read this. I want you to see all of this as your call and your role as well as a vital member of this church family. Certainly, hold me and hold leaders to a high standard and test what we're doing with what you see in here, but do not let yourself off the hook. You are a leader. You have influence on other people, and if you think you don't, you do, and God wants you to even take up greater roles of leadership and influence in people's lives in this church community, and God tells us when we do that that we are actually walking in the plans that he had for us. As was read earlier, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Ephesians 2, 10, says he has good works for us to do that. He prepared in advance before you were even born to walk in them. So as you read this, think of yourself first, which is always a great principle as we're reading scripture, not to think, oh, they should be doing that. Oh, they should, oh, you should be doing this. You know, no. God, what? What would you have me do? How should I change my heart and my thinking? So we're going to break down Timothy's job description, which, like I just said, is yours and mine to some degree as well. So instruct God's plan in love. Let's start with instruct. It says this in verse 3, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. Now, this word instruct is a military term that's authoritative. It's it's this term that means 
strict orders and commands. It's not like, well, uh, maybe if you want to, you should probably do this, okay? No, it's nothing like that. It's like, you must do this now. Paul's telling Timothy, you need to teach these things in a very serious manner. And so, what is he to teach? Let's start with what he is not to teach, because that's what Paul does. He's to instruct other people not to teach, verse 3, false doctrine. Now, what were some of the false doctrines or false teachings of Timothy's day in Ephesus? Well, Paul tells us, it's verse 4, myths, myths. Now, this could have been any number of things, but it certainly would have included, sometimes people would take the Old Testament laws, the scripture, and add to them. You'd be like, oh, oh, oh. So you're supposed to obey your mother and father, which means that you should obey your mother and father and you should obey your aunt and uncle every time they tell you to do every little thing. But, but not just like that, which is a good principle, right? But they would just add little things, to, like just little caveats on there that go way far away from obey your mother and father to like, even if they tell you to do something unbiblical, you should do it. And it's like, how did we get there? But they would do it in ways that were manipulative, and to try to get money from people, and in ways that were completely wrong. They were disgracing God's word, and they were doing it for profit and gain. Another false teaching, verse 4, was endless genealogies. So they would puff themselves up and their family up to, to gain more attention and clout, by linking themselves directly to someone like Moses. Like, my chain goes back, all my family tree goes all the way back to Joshua or Moses or Abraham or whatever. And family heritage was a huge deal back then, okay? Who you were and everything that you could, you could get um, ahead in society with and in culture had to do with your family heritage. So it's understandable why they would want to do something like this. But they would do this in order to manipulate things, in order for themselves just to look better. And he said, hey, don't be part of that. And so today, we have false teachings that are similar to those in Ephesus. Today, they often sneak in by people cherry-picking scriptures out of context. Let me give you a great example. In sports, you often hear, you know what? Philippians 4.13, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You're going to win that soccer game today. You can win that soccer game today. You just got to work really hard. You will win that game because Christ is strengthening you. Baloney. If you read Philippians 4 in context, he's talking, he says, here's the secret to contentment. You can walk through anything with the strength of Christ. So whether, whether you are poor, whether you are rich, whether you're going through a hard time, or whether things are fantastic, you can walk through that season of life right now through him who gives you strength. That is what that verse means. It doesn't mean you can do anything you want. Just because Christ is strengthening you. There are many things Christ does not want you to do or accomplish that are not good for you. So there's, this is what happens. People take things out of context. Context is king. And here's the deal. When you're reading scripture, we can't just take one little thing and go, oh, yeah, that, and it applies to this. No, 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 no. We need to figure out what the original author intended to say 
What was God trying to say through that author? And then apply it to our lives. And if we skip that step, we end up creating false teachings and convince ourselves of it. See, this is why here at Stonebridge, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. That way God determines the flow of thought, not Matt, not anyone else who's up here preaching. And even when we pull over with certain themes, we're going to have a passage of Scripture be the linchpin as we preach it. Let me give some other similar false doctrines of our day, similar to those in Ephesus. Sometimes you'll hear people say something like this. Give money to church, and you'll become rich beyond your wildest dreams. No. It's not in the Bible. Another one. People elevate, quote-unquote, celebrity pastors and their teaching so high that they just listen to everything they say and don't test it with the Word of God and end up being deceived very quickly. We are seeing today, as another example whole denominations using the phrase God is love to throw away clear scriptural teaching on gender, sex, and marriage. I hear people say, I don't need a local church. It's just me and Jesus. They're ignoring the clear teachings of the Bible that tell us we need a church family, and they're also ignoring what God has actually hardwired into them that tells us, oh yeah, it's not good for us to be alone. We really do need one another as we follow Christ. And I could just keep going on and on. Some of you might be thinking, you know what? I'm not really into doctrine, Matt. Okay, I'm not a theology guy, so it doesn't really apply to me. Okay, perhaps you're less intellectual in your walk with Christ. But doctrine drives your life, whether you like it or not. What you believe about God What you believe about yourself and what you believe about the world around you radically shapes how you think, how you live, and how you love. It does. Your your thoughts drive what you do. And your thoughts come from your theology. Doctrine is of utmost importance. So we've seen the blueprints for what we shouldn't teach and what Timothy shouldn't teach and what we shouldn't teach. What should we so, let's go back to the scripture. 1 Timothy 1, 3-4. I urge you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than, here it is, God's plan which operates by faith. Teach God's plan. God's plan is the opposite of false doctrine. It's true doctrine, and true doctrine is found right here in Scripture, in the Word of God. True doctrine is found in Scripture. It's from God, not from man. Timothy and every church leader in any capacity should be teaching God's Word. This is why we spend hours working to craft a Sunday morning message, and it's not just me or whoever's preaching up here. We collaborate with the elders, and we work with other people to make sure that what we are teaching is sound and is from God, from his word. See, this teaching drives the ship of the theology here at our church. So it better be from God. It better be from the Bible, or we're going to sink real fast. 
This is why we take great care what is taught even right now as we speak in our kids' classrooms. This is why we take great care what is taught to our youth, to our adults in every setting. We're literally guarding and protecting the souls of people. See, we're not just teaching kids in our children's ministry. We are teaching them the words of God. You should feel the weight of this. Every time you talk about God with someone else, even in super casual settings, you should feel a weight that you are telling them God's plans, God's word. That is a sacred trust. God's plan also is the opposite of myths and endless genealogies. It's the gospel. The heart of the Bible is the gospel message. See, in spite of what you did, and because of what you did, sin, Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead for you. And all of the scripture points to the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you read scripture any other way, you won't be reading it properly. You will not understand God's plan. Tim Keller, who recently passed away, who was a New York City pastor, which like I said earlier, is a similar climate to Ephesus, said this, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A through Z of Christianity. See, it's God's plan spelled out clearly in his word. And the culmination of his plan is the gospel. So as you teach scripture, run quickly and often to the gospel. This brings clarity. This brings hope. This brings help in understanding it. We just went through Ecclesiastes. And if you just look at that without a Christ-centered lens, you will walk away depressed. You will if you've read that book. But we did not just look at that that way. We saw the sobering realities under the sun in Ecclesiastes. But then we ran fast to the hope of Christ and said, yes, as we walk around and don't take God into account, this life seems absolutely meaningless. But if you have Christ in your life, everything you do is chock full of meaning. We have to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to the word as we read it. Also, God's plan is not just the word, it's not just the gospel, it's fueled by faith and trust in God. It's meaningless if you are going to bring the gospel and bring the word of God if you yourself don't have a rock-solid faith and trust in God. Otherwise, you're just teaching people words. Motives matter. Then to verse 4, which operates by faith. If you're wondering if something is God's plan or whether it's a merely human plan, ask this, does it scream we trust God and need God to come through or this isn't going to work or is God an afterthought? Is God the focus? Is he the hope? Is he the goal? Or is he a puppet for other people's plans? Tragically, people have used God for centuries for their own selfish plans and purposes over and over. And if we are all honest, we've tried to use God for our own selfish plans and purposes as well on occasion. But when you are teaching God's plan, it must, you must operate by faith and trust in God. 
Your motives matter so much. When you are teaching your kids, when you're teaching your friend who, from church over lunch about God or just a, in a more formal setting like as a youth leader or right here preaching like I am this morning, ask yourself, why am I teaching them about God? Is it for my honor or for his? And then ask yourself, who am I emphasizing as I teach them about God? God or people? God's plan is fueled by faith and trust in God, not anyone or anything else. It operates by faith. And the last part in verse 5, 1 Timothy 1.5, we are to instruct God's plan in love. 1.5 says, Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Did you catch that? The goal of the military-like command to instruct has to be done in love. Those things are not against each other. All instruction must be done in love. And it defines it here with a pure heart. Now, love is a convoluted term that means all sorts of things to all Sorts of different people in different situations. But love, biblically and here, means sacrificial, unselfish care. Sacrificial, unselfish care. Timothy must not simply instruct them the truth of God's plan. Stopping there misses the whole point. He must do it in order to unselfishly care for them. And that's our goal. Anytime we're teaching anyone of the things of God. It's all about motives. Am I teaching this to love this person? Am I teaching this to love these people well? Or am I teaching them to stick it to them? Or am I teaching them in order to get some attention or praise? Or am I teaching them to feel good because I shared truth today? You know, 1 Corinthians 13 says that if you do that, if you teach people the truth of God, God's plan, Without love, you're like clanging cymbals. Now, I was a percussionist, still am, but I was a percussionist in band. And um, in high school, I loved to play the cymbals. And here's why I loved to play the cymbals. Because I knew right when my part would come, because you only have like two crashes in a song or something. Like, it's, it's rather ridiculous. But um, it's fun, because you learn exactly where it is, and you go behind your friend who's playing the trombone, just right in their ear. And then they turn around and punch you in the face. It's great. Um, no, but we love to do that. I had that done to me, too. It's just, it's the thing, right? And uh, don't do that, kids. Um, but the thing is, this is what it's like, Paul is saying, when we bring the truth to people without love. It's received like that. And you might be saying 100% truth, but who cares? And they may even want to turn around and punch you if you don't do that in love. Next, we see that all instruction must be received in love. So it says, from a good conscience. So as you're teaching people about God, you need to ask, have you done everything you can to help them receive it as loving? And sometimes we think to ourselves, well... That's their problem if they want to be so sensitive. Is it? 
Now, certainly we can't change how people will take things sometimes, right? But if you're going to instruct in love with a good conscience, you should do what you can to take away speed bumps. And aren't those the worst? Like sometimes you just don't see it coming and you're like, Shoot, there goes my axle back there. Um, but speed bumps, I, I get why they put them, I just hate them. So we want to get rid of them as we speak to other people, as we tell other people. And I want you to not think of just like this. You, you're probably thinking as I'm speaking, oh, next time I get up and preach on Sunday, which I don't do. No, no, no. I want you to think next time you're even talking about God with anybody. Okay, this, this is for you. All right? So how can we remove Speed bumps from people. Well, you can ask, hey, could I, could I teach, could I, could I say this with a different tone so that it comes across as less abrasive or harsh? Speed bump gone. Could I, could I teach with greater emphasis on grace? Speed bump gone. Could I teach using less potential buzzwords that I know are just going to get them riled up and aren't necessary? Speed bump gone. And here's the thing, you, you can't remove all the speed bumps, and sometimes you shouldn't, actually. Sometimes, the most loving thing to do is to present something a little more boldly so they can really hear it like they need to. But even then, your goal is love. All instruction, on top of this, should not just be done in love and received in love from a good conscience, it should be applied in love. A sincere faith, it says. So when you hear instruction like you're hearing me this morning, you must go and apply it in love. So if you hear this this morning, that you're supposed to instruct God's plan in love, then don't go out and talk to someone and go, you're lazy, you need to read your Bible more. Okay, Terrible way to apply this. Let me give you an idea of how to apply this message in love with a sincere faith. And this is something I'm doing right now. You could bring the Lord's Prayer to the table with someone else. Maybe it's a roommate. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's with your kids. And this is what I've been doing lately. I just printed out the Lord's Prayer, and we're just going line by line. Tonight, the dinner table, we're going to pray about the fact that he's our Father, our Father. And then the next night, we're, well, he's in heaven. What's that mean? Well, he's in control. He's got everything under control. We can trust him. Well, let's pray and talk to him about that tonight. You see, that would be a great way that would be inviting and unselfish and loving to apply this message, to start to instruct other people about how to pray, straight from Jesus himself through the Lord's Prayer. Instruct God's plan in love. So to end, I just want to remind you of God's plan, the gospel. I think we can just get caught up in all of this. I just gave you something to do. And I don't want you to walk away with the last thing in your mind, something you should do. Instead, I want you to, to be more strengthened and encouraged and full of joy because of God's plan in general. Because when we get excited about something, we can't help but share it with others, right? So let me share the gospel as described by Tim Keller. It's on the screen for you. The gospel is that I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me, yet so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. 
I can't feel superior to anyone. And yet, I have nothing to prove to anyone. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the good news of the gospel. I thank you for your plan for our lives. And I pray if there are those here that do not know.